This is an ABC podcast. Hello, welcome to PM. I'm Samantha Donovan, coming to you from the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation in Melbourne. Tonight, Nepal's aviation safety record under scrutiny after the country's deadliest plane crash in 30 years. Also, the push for a new way to care for people with a disability after a report reveals high rates of abuse within group homes. The group home model was seen as an appropriate model 20 or 30 years ago. I don't think the industry views it as an appropriate model now. Most people who are living in group homes would be receiving support from the National Disability Insurance Scheme. And travellers in northern Queensland stranded as heavy rain leads to flooded roads. Currently we have over 60 people on site and we've got two cats and about probably 10 or 12 dogs. We've got travellers that are arriving who've slept in their vehicles overnight. First tonight, rescuers in Nepal have resumed their search for four people still missing after the aeroplane crash that killed at least 68 people. The tragedy has led to both despair and anger. Both the Nepalese public and aviation experts are furious at what they see as a failure to regulate safety standards. This is the Himalayan nation's deadliest plane crash in 30 years, but it's hardly a one-off. Since the year 2000, nearly 350 people have died in such crashes in Nepal. David Sparks reports. As the search for survivors or bodies resumes today, public frustration is growing. The Yeti Airlines flight was carrying 72 people when it was attempting to land at Pokhara, instead crashing into a nearby gorge. 68 bodies have been recovered, four are still unaccounted for. Journalist Sanjeev Satganya, who's the former editor of the Kathmandu Post, says one emotion is more powerful than all the others. Since yesterday after the crash news broke out, uh, people are very angry and Nepal's aviation safety record is pretty, pretty bad, poor. And because of that, uh, EU and ICAO, the UN aviation agency, has been calling for improving Nepal's aviation safety standards. Mm. You mentioned the anger a moment ago that people have right now. How is that being shown? Is it is it on social media? Is it in the streets? Where is this anger coming out? It's basically on social media because it's easier for people to uh, express their anger these days and people have not come to the streets yet. But the point is like, but the kind of thing like like the government, the state has been failing. This is, this is the mood of the people like the state has failed everyone over the last years and it cannot look into such disaster. Nepal has been seeing lots of uh, small accidents. Uh, mostly on stall planes which fly to um, uh, Himalayan regions or, or, or hill hill airports, but this is this is the, this is one of the biggest one which happened in Pokhara. And for the la- last many years, it has been accidents have been happening and nothing has been done. And people are asking questions like the state has failed the people. Kind of that that's the mood people are showing. The plane was trying to land at a newly opened airport in the famous tourist city. Witnesses say it spun violently in the air before crashing. Residents say the flames were so hot they couldn't get near the wreckage. Among the passengers was one Australian. There's still no news on whether that person has been accounted for. Professor Jason Middleton is an aviation safety expert at the University of New South Wales and a former pilot. He says little is known about the cause of the crash beyond a very short video. We only know that the aircraft 
uh, in the end, did a, a rather rapid left bank when it was already quite low and crashed into the ground. Why it did that, uh, the speculation amongst the, uh, the pilot community is that um, the aircraft might have uh, stalled, that is, it was approaching uh, too low, too slow, and, and the, uh, the aircraft stalled. That is, not enough airflow over the wing, and the, air, the wing doesn't give um, the right amount of lift, and uh, that can happen. A stall is often asymmetric, that is, one wing drops before the other. As for what might have caused a stall, Professor Middleton says there's no answer yet. There's a couple of speculations. Uh, one speculation, which isn't a common one, is that um, maybe maybe one of the crew, the captain or something, had a had a medical episode on board, and that distracted the other crew, who was a relatively inexperienced pilot. So that that could have happened. Um, there's another there's a, another theory going around that, that, there's, that the new runway has only been in option, a uh, new airport's only been in action for a, a few weeks and that the, air, the crew um, may have been uh, simply doing an approach to the old airport through habit and you know, not really concentrating what's going on, then finally realised at the last minute where they're too low, they're in the wrong direction and made their left turn, which caused a stall. So... Um, there's, a, there's a, a, an abundant number of theories going around at the moment. He expects the answers will become clearer after an investigation. Yesterday's crash is Nepal's deadliest since 1992, when all 167 people on board a Pakistan International Airlines plane were killed while trying to land in Kathmandu. The European Union has banned airlines from Nepal from flying into its airspace since 2013 because of poor safety standards. David Sparks reporting. To Ukraine now and authorities there say they have little hope of finding any more survivors amidst the rubble of a bombed apartment building in the city of Dnipro in the country's east. The building was hit during a major Russian missile attack on Saturday. 30 people are dead and another 30 are missing. And military experts are worried the fighting may be about to escalate, with Ukraine's neighbour Belarus announcing its beginning joint air force drills with Russia. Rachel Mealy reports. Rescuers are using heavy machinery to cut through the wrecked apartment building in the city of Dnipro. The local mayor says there's little hope of finding any more survivors in the freezing temperatures. He thinks the missile attack was meant for a nearby power plant. My version is that the missile hit the building because there's a thermal station across the river, but the missile flew by and hit residential buildings. 30 people have died, many more were injured and yet more remain unaccounted for. The deputy head of intensive care at the Nipro Hospital says 12 children and 6 adults are being treated in her unit. A nine-year-old girl has been placed in our hospital. She has heavy injuries, one of which happened because of the explosion, as well as a head concussion, two severely broken hips and a shrapnel injury to her shin. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has called on Western allies to supply more weapons to end what he says is Russian terror and attacks on civilian targets. He's asking ordinary Russian people to speak out against the violence. 
I would like to address all those in Russia or from Russia who have failed to say a few words to condemn this terror even now, even though they perfectly see and know everything. Your cowardly silence, your attempt to wait out what is happening, will only end with the same terrorists coming to get you one day. Will Partlett is an associate professor at the University of Melbourne Law School. He says there are a number of worrying signs that the war in Ukraine is about to escalate. As the region heads out of this really kind of cold winter into a, into the spring, um, so I think, yeah, we, could, we should see this attack and I think the Russians will increasingly They'll continue even intensify attacks on civilian infrastructure. As well, the Russians have made changes to senior command positions within the army, suggesting a change of strategy might be afoot. General Valery Gerasimov, who was previously the army's chief of staff, will now lead its war effort in Ukraine. Well, the, the Russians are formally describing it as a way to ensure more kind of better coordination between Gerasimov. He's the head of the general staff, so he has all the connections with the other heads of the um, the Russian military. He's the head of the kind of the armed forces generally, so that he has the kind of the gravitas to really push forward an invasion or an escalation on the Russian side. He says the new general might bring fresh army recruits to join the battle. So it might suggest, and I think that's probably right, that this is suggesting that the Russians now are going to get these guys that they've mobilized, about 100,000 plus, who have been in training, and that they're going to be moving them to the front and trying to take more territory, likely in Donetsk and maybe also in Lugansk. As well, Russia has announced it will stage joint military exercises with Belarus. That's triggered fears within Ukraine that Moscow could be about to use the neighbouring country to launch a new ground offensive. Associate Professor Partlett says it all signals a fresh start in the almost 12-month-long conflict. This could be misdirection um, from the Russians to try to divert some Ukrainian forces to that northern border with Belarus. Um, that's Some people are suggesting that. It's hard to know at this stage, but again, it is. it clearly seems to be part of a of a move on the Russian side to suggest that they are going to be moving out of this stage of defensive kind of holding the line operations to really starting to take the initiative again. That's Associate Professor Will Partlett from the University of Melbourne, Rachel Mealy reporting. Disability advocates are calling for the phasing out of group homes for people living with a disability. A report by the Disability Watchdog has revealed alarmingly high rates of abuse, neglect and sexual misconduct in the homes. And it found the offenders are other residents and disability support workers. But where else can people with a disability live? Catherine Gregory takes a look. Imagine not having a choice in your living situation being forced to live with people you don't even know or perhaps don't even like. That's the situation for about 27,000 Australians who live in supported disability accommodation, also known as group homes. And the consequences are dangerous, according to disability advocates like Catherine McAlpine from Inclusion Australia. People with an intellectual disability are one of the only groups in the community where government policy dictates that they must live in groups with people that they don't choose, with people that they might not know, and with a provider that they can't choose as well. And this leads to violence, abuse, neglect. The NDIS Quality and Safeguards Commission reveals that in the four years to September 2022, there were 7,340 reportable incidents in more than 1,000 group homes. 
That includes cases of serious injury, abuse, neglect and sexual misconduct. Other residents and carers are the perpetrators. Catherine McAlpine says the report highlights just how widespread and bad the situation is. She wants to see more investment in supported decision-making for people in these homes so they understand they have agency. So that people with an intellectual disability who know what they need and who are able to speak for themselves, that their voice is heard loud and clear. The report identified the lack of control as one of the contributing factors to the cases of abuse. Bill Shorten is the NDIS minister. Clearly... People living in group homes often have less choice and control over their NDI supports. So uh, there is a negative aptitude and attitude by a small number in the workforce, which is driving a high number of the issues. The union representing disability workers thinks a minimum training requirement and less reliance on a casual workforce will help reverse the problem. Graeme Innes is the former Disability Discrimination Commissioner and agrees with these recommendations. Oh, there's a human rights issue here. I mean, no violence is acceptable under under any circumstances. He says in some cases, people with disability are kept in these homes similar to a place of detention, and that warrants a deep investigation under the United Nations Convention Against Torture. There are certainly places where people with disabilities are kept against their will in housing-like situations, and, and they definitely fall under the protocol. Mr Innes wants to see a phasing out of group homes. An alternative would be that people with disabilities would be accommodated in the same way as uh, other people in the community, that is, uh, according to their their choices of accommodation. They wouldn't be four or five people uh, at a time grouped in the one uh, property, often in you know, relatively confined situations. The group home model was seen as an appropriate model 20 or 30 years ago. I don't think the industry views it as an appropriate model now. Most people who are living in group homes would be receiving support from the National Disability Insurance Scheme, and that would continue if a person uh, moves into alternative accommodation. It would be a complex process that'll take time. Ross Joyce, the head of the Australian Federation of Disability Organisations, also wants group homes to go. But in the meantime, he wants to see big changes in how they're set up. Around 20,000 people that rely on that for their support and accommodation need to still have somewhere to go. So what are we going to do there? And we already see that there's issues with housing as such and supply of housing. I think the other one is we do need a separation between who are the accommodation providers and who are the service providers? Because that lessens the choice and control and ability of people with disabilities. We do need to have a visitation system set up immediately, suggested, you know, the community visitor programs, which are in a lot of states and territories. We do need that independent look, see at what's going on there. Ross Joyce from the Australian Federation of Disability Organisations, Catherine Gregory reporting. This is PM, I'm Samantha Donovan. Ahead, the Northern Territory Government rejects accusations it's allowed land to be cleared for cotton growers without permits. We have a mass anti-cotton movement where their, their operation is to go out there and try to stop the further development of cotton.
two months out from the New South Wales state election, poker machine reform is emerging as a key issue. The Premier, Dominic Perrottet, has promised to introduce cashless gaming across the state. Under pressure from anti-gambling advocates, the Labor Party has responded, pledging to expand bans on political donations to include the club's sector. The Labor leader, Chris Minns, announced the policy earlier today. We believe that this is the plan that's required to deal with the complicated issue with an evidence-based approach to ensure that any changes that we make in relation to gambling reform in fact work. Michael McGowan is a political reporter for The Guardian Australia. Michael, how did poker machines become such a big issue for Labor and the Coalition in New South Wales? Yeah, I think there's uh, a long history here, well, over the past few years. In in 2019, you had a a former minister, Victor Dominello, task Patricia Burgeon to investigate Star Casino. He was initially pushing for a a cashless gambling card back then uh, and and lost his portfolio after quite a big pushback from the the club's lobby. But uh, I think that that more recently, the real turning point was a Crime Commission report in October, which found huge amounts of of dirty money was being gambled in in pubs and clubs in New South Wales every year. And that was what prompted Dominic Perrottet, the the Premier, to come out in favour of the cashless gambling card um, a few months ago now. And, And I think that that sort of advocacy on his part put pressure on Labor, who have opposed the widespread interaction of the card um, to sort of come up with their own suite of policies ahead of the election. So in response, what is Labor proposing? Yeah, so they've come out today and said that they would ban donations from the club's sector, clubs and hotels sector, and introduce an expanded 500 machine trial of cashless gaming cards uh, in New South Wales and, and a, a suite of other things, including things like banning the VIP lounge signage outside pubs in New South Wales and, and reduced uh, input limits on new poker machines so that it would come down from about $5,000 to to $500 in those machines. So how do you think those proposals stack up against uh, the coalition government's policy for a cashless gaming card? Mm, well, it's interesting. I mean, you've already had sort of anti-gambling advocates and, and crossbench MPs like Alex Greenwich come out and say that the announcements by Labor aren't enough, right? So the $500 input limit, for example, is limited to new machines. And they also say that a trial of mandatory cashless gaming um, isn't necessary, that we already have the, the, the sort of evidence that, that we need and, and they would just like to see it introduced. They also worry about the makeup of an expert panel that Labor said that it'll put together to judge whether the trial is a success because they say, well, who's going to be on that panel, I suppose, if it's going to be made up of industry representatives, will that um, skew its results, I suppose. But I think in terms of comparing it to the government, it actually puts pressure back on the coalition because while Dominic Perrottet has said he supports a cashless gaming card, we don't have any detail from the government on, on what exactly that would look like. So, for example, what the uh, if, if indeed there would be a, a daily maximum limit on a cashless gaming card, uh, how widely it would be deployed, there, there are plenty of questions, I suppose, um, for the coalition coming from the back of this. Well, Clubs New South Wales too says that Labor's gambling policy may have significant impacts on the club's industry, but at the same time it's not happy with the coalition's uh, cashless gaming card proposal. Will the parties be able to withstand pressure from that pretty powerful group? 
Well, it's interesting. I mean, the, the club's lobby in New South Wales is extraordinarily powerful. New South Wales is such a large proportion of, of, of poker machines, of Australia's poker machines, I should say, and they have an enormous sway. When you have a situation where both major parties now are suggesting policies that the club's lobby isn't happy with, they sort of have the effect of... of I'm sure the parties hope cancelling out that pressure because when, when both sides are doing things that the club's lobby doesn't want, it sort of stymies the effectiveness of any campaign, I, I think. Guardian Australia political reporter Michael McGowan. Communities in northern Queensland have been cut off by floodwaters as heavy rain moves across the state. Stranded travellers have been forced into emergency accommodation and authorities are once again warning drivers to steer clear of flooded roads. And with more wet weather expected, residents are bracing for further disruptions. Here's Matt Bamford. Inside this PCYC in the Queensland town of Bowen, there's a buzz of activity. As torrential rain batters the region, the building has become a refuge from the storm. Currently we have over 60 people on site and we've got two cats and about probably 10 or 12 dogs. We've got travellers that are arriving who've slept in their vehicles overnight. Um, We've got people that have just arrived into town that have no accommodation or the accommodation is um, pretty well booked out. Sergeant Michelle O'Regan has been coordinating the emergency accommodation. We are being inundated by the generosity of our wonderful community. We've had people coming in with blankets, clothing, bedding, toiletries. Yeah, I heard there was even a vegetarian lasagna brought in at one point. Yeah, vegetarian lasagna. Our local Pizza Hut donated 25 pizzas last night within the first two minutes of a call out for for help and they made sure they had gluten-free and vegetarian options without us even having to ask. Despite the summer drenching, Sergeant O'Regan says spirits remain high. We've got some people from France and international tourists that are here uh, making the most of the moment. We've got our gymnastics staff out on the floor giving the uh, all the kids a impromptu gymnastics lesson, which is wonderful to see. And uh, this morning, probably around six thirty, seven o'clock, I saw a group of about five little girls all sitting in a circle, just having a nice little chat, and they just made friends. So, hopefully, there's some uh, wonderful memories being made. The severe weather system has affected large parts of northern and central Queensland. Floodwaters have cut access to communities between Mackay and Bowen, where more than 350 millimetres of rain has fallen in the last 24 hours. Many roads have been closed, including the Bruce Highway. Gary Mann from the Queensland Trucking Association says freight deliveries are backing up. Well, it's quite significant. I mean, we've, we've got two problems in the main. We've got uh, quite a a convoy of vehicles caught at particular locations where they can neither sort of go forward or back. Um, So you've got that freight caught up until such time as uh, those roads open. But then the second part is that we need to replenish those communities in the north. So we need access um, in as best we can and or uh, bring produce and and other goods um, out of the north, particularly off the tablelands, down into markets uh, down south. It means drivers are having to spend extended time on the road. Well, quite a few are caught up um, where these uh, blockages, for want of a better term, have occurred uh, at, at a whole variety of different points. Our employers are doing their utmost to be able to support them in those locations as best they can. The greater majority of those drivers would at least have sleeper cabins available for them, but they certainly wouldn't have 
more than a day or two um, of um, food and other necessities uh, on board at any given time. So um, I know the authorities are doing their best to keep them uh, replenished. Gary McMahon says it's another example of the need for better infrastructure. We are working around those uh, routes uh, reasonably okay, uh, but it further reinforces that we really need an all-weather freight route around this country. You know, it's been way too long, the experience of um, flooding uh, rains down the east coast and, and in the west uh, we get almost every year these these years. So I think the time has come where uh, our infrastructure investment needs to focus on it, having at least uh, one all-weather route uh, around Australia. More rain is predicted in the coming days, up to 400 millimetres in some places. Kerry Battersby from the Queensland Farmers Federation says farmers will be watching conditions closely. The next 48 hours will be critical in determining how serious a rain event this is, um, with an expectation of you know another half a metre of rain, um, especially around the Mackay to Bowen region. I think there's some concern, but at the moment... Farmers are, have been well prepared and we're just um, holding the fort and um, just watching for the next 48 hours. Kerry Battersby from the Queensland Farmers Federation. Matt Bamford with that report. The Northern Territory Government is blasting what it's branding a mass anti-cotton movement and defending itself against allegations it's allowed land to be cleared for the industry without permits. It says the new cotton industry is essential for growing the NT economy and it's unfazed by a federal government investigation into the allegations. Jane Barden has more. The NT's Acting Chief Minister, Nicole Manison, is defending the Territory's fledgling cotton industry as essential. It will create more jobs. Uh, it is going to be something that uh, has many flow-on and benefit effects. The NT Farmers Association has estimated at least 91 jobs would be created and $200 million pumped into the local economy. Research director at the Australia Institute think tank Rod Campbell is challenging that. If you look at the average number of people employed per hectare of cotton produced uh, in Australia in 2021 and you assume, as the NT Farmers Association do, that the NT could have about 40,000 hectares of cotton growing in the next few years, then you get to about 70 jobs. You know, there's 100,000 people employed in the Northern Territory, so that's a, that's a change of less than a tenth of 1%. The General Manager of Cotton Australia, Michael Murray, is rejecting that analysis. The cotton industry actually employs quite a few people. So whether you're a uh, cotton ginner, so the gin being built in Catherine will probably employ four to seven full-time staff and around 25 staff during the, the ginning season. If you're a mechanic and you're um, you know, managing uh, you know, the modern machinery. Nicole Manison is accusing naysayers of unwarranted attacks. We have a mass anti-cotton movement where their operation is to go out there and try to stop the further development of cotton. But accusations from environment groups that the NT government has allowed cotton producers to start clearing land for plantations and a processing plant in the NT's Daly, Barclay and Catherine areas before it then issued permits to clear are being investigated by the Federal Environment Department. The northern cotton industry has declined to respond to the allegations. 
The Environment Centre's Kirsty Howie says the federal government should have taken action earlier. We raised this with the Federal Environment Department back in January 2022. Uh, and we alleged that there could be potential breaches of federal environmental law because certain threatened species could be impacted. The Gouldian finch, the ghost bat and the partridge pigeon. We weren't aware until in the last week that the federal department had considered launching any investigation. We hadn't had any substantive response. The federal environment department told PM in a statement it's in Investigations started before allegations in the media last week, but it couldn't provide a running commentary for fear of jeopardising them. Nicole Manison is defending the NT government's actions. We've got over 1.3 million square kilometres of land, less than 1% of native vegetation cleared on that land. In assessments for the land clearing, the NT government found one application didn't need threatened species consideration, and on another, Gouldian finches could use other habitat. BirdLife Australia Biodiversity Coordinator Amanda Lilliman says cumulative impacts need to be considered. I think the person that assessed that has made a mistake in saying that 5,000 hectares will be no bother for the finches or other threatened bird species. The NT government is really arguing that the total area cleared of habitat in the territory is and is likely to be small. Do they have a point there or once we start to lose some areas, does it potentially have a big impact on species like the Gouldian finch? Yeah, definitely you're losing this little bit by bit. So this death by a thousand cuts approach, we've seen it happen elsewhere and now it's continuing in the Northern Territory here. Some of these areas have been designated key biodiversity areas and that's part of an international program. So we do need to stick to the things that we sign up to and that we agree to and protect these species. Dr Amanda Lilliman, she's BirdLife Australia's biodiversity coordinator and she was talking there to Jane Barden. Thanks for joining me for PM. I'm Samantha Donovan. Do head to the PM webpage for all our interviews and reports to share and you can catch the program live or later on the ABC Listen app. We'll be back at the same time tomorrow. Good night. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.